1: Hello and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we meet with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. If you enjoy The Huddle, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patty Scalzo, Director of Diabetes Technology Initiatives at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today we will be hearing from Patty Telgener, RN, MBA and CDC, who is an expert in coding and billing for DSMEs and diabetes devices, and from Sasha Yulman, RDN, CDCES and Director of Diabetes Education and Prevention Programs at ADCES, Patty and Sasha will be discussing how to bill and code for insulin pump initial training and upgrades, personal and professional CGM, and remote patient monitoring, as well as who can use these codes. Additionally, they will be offering insights and strategies into other possible options surrounding diabetes device processes. Hi
0: Patty, so it's good to talk to you today. Sasha same here. I have some questions that I'd love to learn a little bit more from you about when it comes to some different billing codes and diabetes devices. So the first one I really am wondering about is how can DSMES providers be reimbursed for insulin pump training? Are there specific billing codes that support insulin pump training by accredited and recognized programs or other providers in the diabetes care setting? So, Sasha, really good question. This comes
2: up all the time, and providers kind of asking, you know, how can they bill for insulin pump training?
0: Although there
2: are not specific CPT codes for insulin pump training, there are a couple options for providers to get reimbursed for pump trainings. And let's kind of walk through them. I'm going to kind of outline them in three different ways. One is to have that provider develop a partnership with the pump manufacturers. There are some pump manufacturers that may offer a contracting service directly to the diabetes educator doing the training on the insulin pumps. The second kind of scenario that we see is if a physician or an advanced practitioner provides the insulin pump training, they may be able to bill under the evaluation and management codes because the education time can be counted as counseling to determine the correct level of ENM code that would be billed. Kind of the third and fourth options are, one, possibly the DSMT codes. And Sasha, why I say possibly, Is there are some requirements. So, in that case, the patient would have to have a DSMT referral and they would also have to have sufficient DSMT hours that can be used towards that insulin pump training. Lastly, there are some just general patient education codes. Those CPT codes are in the range of 98960 to 98962, and those are time based. But they do not require accreditation. And although not covered by Medicare, many commercial payers do cover those general patient education codes. So Sasha, that's really kind of how I walk through kind of the options to
0: get reimbursed for insulin pump training. I see. So I really think, you know, that first option of contracting with a pump company sounds like probably the easiest one or maybe the most effective one for our our diabetes care and education specialists to be reimbursed for this. Can you just give me an idea of who else should be involved? I know my program did this, and the first time I signed a contract, I learned Really quickly, when our contracts department hunted me down and said, "Sashi, you're not allowed to sign contracts for our health system. Um, and we had to start over. So who else, other than I know like my health system had a contracts department, who else would you recommend getting involved? And how do you get started in a process like that?
2: So I think the first question would be to kind of develop that relationship with the insulin pump companies, And then the second would be to make sure that kind of everyone on your team is aware. And most contracts do require somebody in the contracting department or the legal area to also sign off. So in your example, Sasha, I I would agree. I would not recommend one of the diabetes educator to kind of go solo and sign that contract, but really bring
0: in compliance, legal, and the entire team. Perfect. That's helpful. At least I can make mistakes that help other people not make them. Um, So my next question is, is very related, but if someone gets a pump upgrade or switches to a different brand or type of insulin pump, is there a process or billing codes to support that? So there he is, it's kind of uh, redundant
2: from what we did just talk about. But if a patient, for example, gets a pump upgrade or switches to a completely different brand, the patient is going to need to be trained on using that upgraded system or the new pump. But billing for a new pump would really be the same as kind of patient switching to a different pump. They're gonna start from the beginning And our options are kind of the same, partnering possibly with the manufacturer for contract training, evaluation and management codes if performed by a physician or advanced practitioner, or as we talked about, possibly the DSMT or patient education would also come into play here with that patient getting a new pump, not necessarily being pump naive, but just getting a new system.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it might be a little bit more feasible in this scenario because they're not necessarily going to start from zero if they're already a pump user. So that's helpful. Correct. Let's move on to CGM, continuous glucose monitors. We know that the CGM placement and training has billing codes, but can you clarify the difference between professional and personal and what providers can use which codes?
2: Okay, so at the risk of aging myself, when CGM first came to the market, there really was only professional or diagnostic CGM. Terminology of professional or diagnostic CGM, you often see it used interchangeably. But what it really means is that the physician or the hospital owns the CGM equipment and the patient may use that CGM device for approximately seven to 10 days. So really used as a diagnostic. Most times, but not all, that patient is blinded to the data. So when they return to the provider's office at 7 to 10 days later to get the system removed, the provider and that patient does get a readout of the glucose readings. There's a reading every five minutes for the entire time that that patient was under or using professional or diagnostic CGM. So this data can be extremely revealing as they might learn for the first time that they are hypoglycemic every morning at 4.30, which they did not know because obviously they were not doing a finger stick at 4.30 in the morning when they were sleeping. Mm -hmm. Or you can also see what their glucose does after lunch at a fast food restaurant. So what this Diagnostic, a professional CGM really allows that patient and physician to have a discussion on their glycemic control and not just points in time when someone brings in a glucose log of just four finger sticks a day. That does not tell you a complete picture. Whereas 24 7 data over seven to 10 days really can help diagnose and really get a better understanding for that patient's diabetes control. So that's
0: professional or diagnostic. You know, that's really useful. And I know when I work clinically, we did that. But I don't recall how often you can do that with someone who doesn't have their own, that professional version. So coverage and utilization
2: data can vary. So in the case of Medicare, Medicare has not restricted or said it can only be used X number of time. Some commercial payers like Aetna or Humana says every six months. What I recommend is, one, make sure you understand the coverage for each of your payers, and then most importantly, always document the medical necessity as to why you're doing that test. You may have a system that you do it every six months, you do it quarterly, or you do it if the patient has, you know, hypoglycemia, whatever your criteria for doing a diagnostic CGM, make sure you document that in the chart. Okay. Perfect. Okay, let me take the rest of that question, Sasha, because your question was, what's the difference between kind of professional and personal? So personal CGM is when the patient actually owns the device and they are managing that device on their own. They are getting glucose readings and trending data approximately every five minutes. The supplies that are ongoing are sent directly to the patient The role of the provider with personal CGM would be to possibly train them when they first start on the device or the ongoing review and interpretation of that data. And there are specific CPT codes, Sasha. So CGM can clearly benefit the patient and it also financially can be good for the provider as well. So, for personal CGM, they would bill the 95249 for training that patient. And then the 95251 is for the
0: ongoing interpretation of that data. Okay, so 95249 is for when someone brings their CGM in. And for example, I train them how to use it. And then 95251 is for the interpretation of that data. Who does the interpretation? Can I do that as a CDCES? So, good question. So, no, the
2: CDE or the RN can do the 95249, but the interpretation must be done by either a physician or advanced practitioner. And that kind of comes back to scope of practice
0: and making medical management changes. Okay. And so, when the professional CGM comes in, would that be the same code to bill for the training of the professional CGM? Or is there a different code for that? So there is
2: a different code. That would be 95250. And in that case, the payment for 95250 is higher. The Medicare average is around 135. And the reason for that is in that case, the physician or the provider is incurring the cost of the sensor and the equipment, et cetera. So, Sasha, you are correct that the professional or diagnostic uses 95250. Personal would use the 95249 for training. Now, that CPT code for interpretation that we talked about would be pertinent for both, whether you're interpreting the personal or whether you're interpreting the
0: professional. Okay, so if you work in a clinic that's got a full diabetes care team, and including those advanced providers, it would be beneficial if you're doing the training to ensure that those providers are really completing the interpretation portion. Is that right? Absolutely, for the most
2: benefit to the
0: patient as well
2: as to comply with the billing,
0: yes. Okay. Well, then, you know, talking about when a person's starting to use the CGM, as you said, there's so much data that can really inform just all kinds of modifications to better blood glucose management from insulin and medication titration to physical activity, changes to food intake. I even had a patient who drank a variety of different types of adult beverages, and he wanted to see which one maybe the best impact on his blood sugar. So really thinking there's so many different ways to use this data, I, you know, I, I, there's so many interventions with the diabetes education care team or diabetes care and education specialist. So how can the team meet their patient's needs while still covering the cost of these frequent interventions? So I think what I hear
2: you asking is, you know, how can providers get reimbursed for kind of these frequent contact points and adjustments that may be needed when the patient starts on a CGM or even an insulin pump? And there are a couple options. So if the data is specific to that CGM device, then Sasha, I really want to reiterate, then those providers should be billing the CGM codes. And in that case, if they're getting data sent from that patient, they can bill the 95251, which does not require a face-to-face. So that would be appropriate for interpreting data that the patient has sent in via the CGM device. But let's talk about some other options. So let's say that patient is requiring kind of frequent contact points. Maybe their glycemic control is experiencing hypoglycemia or hyper. So one, the patient may need to come into the office for a face-to-face or under the public health emergency, that office visit via the physician or the advanced practitioner could be performed via telehealth, and they would bill the office visits. Okay, so that's one option for physician or advanced practitioner. Some other options, and I know we're going to kind of maybe be giving a lot of CPT codes, so people may need to kind of re-listen to the podcast, but I want them to kind of walk away at a high level and understand, there are remote patient monitoring codes, such as chronic care management or family of codes 99453 to 58. And these are time-based codes, all non-face-to-face. Some of them allow clinical staff to be counted towards, most of them are a 20 or a 30-minute time requirement. Some only allow physician or advanced practitioner's time. So it is really important to understand when you're looking at these remote monitoring codes, kind of who can bill, what time is included, and how much time do I need to have non-face-to-face
0: before I can bill. Yeah, that brings up just a quick question, though. Can you clarify who is an advanced practitioner? A diabetes care and education specialist, for example, that wouldn't be necessarily an advanced practitioner, would it? You are correct. So
2: advanced practitioner has standard meaning, and that would mean it's either a nurse practitioner a PA, or in some cases, a clinical nurse specialist. So, so good question. Okay. And most times, this group of advanced practitioners are able to bill to the same level as a physician. Okay. So, Sister, say about these remote patient monitoring codes. And I know we don't have time today to go through each of these in detail. I do want to you know, note that ADCN has some great resources out there on the website about these codes in detail.
0: Yeah, and we'll be linking some of those resources um, along with this podcast for listeners. Perfect. And then I'm just going to give a couple more options again to help providers
2: think how they can be compensated for some of that non-face-to-face time. Um, there are telephone CPT codes, and under the public health emergency, both CMS and commercial patients, commercial payers, have increased the coverage for those codes. And they have also allowed RDs or some clinical staff to make those phone calls. Those CPT codes are in the family of 99441 to 43. And then I just come back to making sure if it's CGM interpretation, there is that 95251 allowing for
0: non-face-to-face interpretation of CGM data. So it sounds like one of the most important things for our listeners is, one, to make sure they have the right code for the service but also to be sure they're the one who can perform the service. Because I think a lot of our members are doing what I would consider somewhat interpretation. They're reviewing the data from the CGM or the pump with the participant and really teaching them self-management, self-care techniques to be able to look at those trends themselves ultimately. But that's not what we're talking about here when we say interpretation. I mean, correct.
2: To build a 95251, kind of that review and interpretation must be done by a physician or advanced practitioner. And the intent there is most likely there's going to be a change in medical management. And that's where the scope of practice would come in. Mm -hmm. And that's why it would require that physician or advanced practitioner. Now for an RD... Um, CDE doing that, that could be included as part of some of these remote monitoring codes, possibly the part of the DSMT or even MNT in some cases, if they're really talking about nutrition
0: and how that impacts their glucose readings. Yeah, I was going to ask, so some of those RPM codes that you mentioned, remote patient monitoring codes, could those be used for reviewing food logs or exercise tracker information in tandem with blood glucose records from a CGM or meter? So... As far as remote monitoring
2: codes in general, Sasha, yes. So the non-face-to-face time reviewing food logs or exercise tracker information, or even blood glucose data, not CGM, but blood glucose data, they may be eligible to be built under the remote patient monitoring codes or even some of the telephonic codes that we just mentioned.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: But it is really important to kind of do a deeper dive into these remote monitoring codes because there are, as I mentioned, specific times that need to be met. So for chronic care management, they need to have at least 20 minutes of non-face-to-face time. That doesn't have to be on the same day. It can be over that 30-day period. So you need to document that time, that cumulatively that you would meet the time requirement. But, you know, again, as we talk about making sure that you understand what are the list of remote monitoring codes, which ones make sense for our practice, which one, and then really look at which ones can the RD, CD, RNs time count towards, and which ones do we need to have the physician and advanced practitioner bill for. With any of these remote monitoring codes though, Sasha, providers will need to have that patient provide consent. That's important because patients will get a bill for remote monitoring. And in the case of Medicare, they would have a 20% copay unless they have a secondary and that can sometimes be confusing to patients because they're like, hey, I didn't even see a physician this month and I have a bill. So again, documenting the time as well as the consent is important. Oh, that's
0: helpful. And is this a verbal consent um, that they could just you know inform the patient and document it or is there a specific form they should use? So under the public health
2: emergency, there's been a lot more flexibility and there can be a verbal consent again, just document the date that you got that verbal consent um, in the chart should there be questions. If the patient's in your office, you may want them to sign a consent. But again, today there's a little more flexibility.
0: Okay. So something to look out for in the future as we hopefully evolve out of this public health emergency. Good to know. Wow. So I think this is helpful. And I think this just drives home the message that I tell of our diabetes care and education specialists on a regular basis, it would sure be nice if we could just bill under one code for all the services, whether, you know, if it was telehealth, maybe there was one code, but realistically, we really need to educate ourselves on all these different codes because they all add up and cover the the important care that we provide.
2: You are exactly right. I wish I could wave the magic wand and say, just bill one code, but as you kind of, heard today, there are numerous options. And as you said, they really can add up. So really making sure that everyone kind of understands the options that are out there for billing for their diabetes education, whether it's in person or
0: not face-to-face. Great. And that just reiterates the importance of making friends with your billing team um, to make sure they're on board and support you as well. Well, thank you, Patty. This has been great. And I hopefully um, this sheds a little bit more clarity for our listeners on these different codes and they can dig into some of the additional resources that we'll provide along with this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you,
1: Sasha. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today we heard from Patty Telgener, RN, MBA and CDC. And from Sasha Yulman, RDN, CDCES, and Director of Diabetes Education and Prevention Programs at ADCES. Patty and Sasha shared a wealth of practical information with us about billing and coding for diabetes devices and some of the tricks of the trade that they have learned along the way. Please be sure to check out the show notes and www.danatech.org for additional resources. Membership at ADCES gives you access to the education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.